Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 5 of Lies of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Joanna of Navarre. Chapter 2, Part 1. Joanna assumed the title of Queen of England some months before her departure from Bretagne, and she is mentioned as such in all contemporary documents. She appears to have exerted a sort of matrimonial influence with her royal bridegroom soon after the ceremonial of their espousals had been performed by proxy, for we find that she wrote to Henry, in behalf of one of her countrymen, the master of a Navarrese wine-ship, who had been plundered of his cargo, in the reign of Richard II, by William Prince, a captain in the Earl of Arundel's fleet. Her intercession proved effectual, for King Henry, as he expressly states, at the request of our dearest consort, enjoins his admiral, Thomas Rampstone, to see that proper satisfaction is made to the master of the wine-ship, by the said William Prince. Previous to her departure from Bretagne, Joanna sold the government of her castle of Nantes to Clisson for twelve thousand crowns, and having only tarried to complete this arrangement, she, on the 20th of December, 1402, proceeded to Camaray with her two infant daughters, Blanche and Marguerite, their nurses, and a numerous train of Breton and Navarrese attendants. The English fleet, with the two half-brothers of her affianced bridegroom, the Earl of Somerset and Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Lincoln, with Thomas Percy, Earl of Worcester, the Lord Chamberlain of England, had been waiting at that port a considerable time. Joanna, with her daughters and her retinue, embarked at Camaray, January 13th, in a vessel of war commanded by the young Earl of Arundel. The expedition sailed the same day with a favorable wind, but encountered a dreadful tempest at sea, by which the vessels were much damaged. After tossing five days and five nights on the wintry waves, Joanna and her children were driven on the coast of Cornwall, and instead of landing at Southampton, their original destination, they disembarked at Falmouth. From thence, the illustrious travelers proceeded to Winchester, where King Henry was in waiting with his lords, to receive his long-expected bride. The nuptials between Joanna and Henry were publicly solemnized, February 7, 1403, in that ancient royal city, in the church of St. Swithin, with great pomp. The bridal feast was very costly, having two courses of fish, and, at the end of the second, Panthers crowned were introduced for what was, in the quaint language of the times, called a sotilti, or banquet ornamented with confectionery. Eagles crowned formed the sotilti at the end of the third course. Great preparations were made by the citizens of London to meet and welcome the newly married consort of the sovereign of their choice 
on her approach to the metropolis. Among other expenses for the civic procession ordained in her honor, the grocer's company allowed Robert Steins, their beadle, six shillings eight pence for riding into Suffolk to hire minstrels. He engaged six, namely, a panel minstrale at seis rampignons, probably meaning companions. This Suffolk musical band was paid four pounds for riding to Blackheath to meet the queen. The mayor, the aldermen, and sheriffs went out in procession on this occasion with the crafts in brown and blue, and every man a red hood on his head. Queen Joanna rested the first day at the tower. That she went to Westminster in grand procession on the following is ascertained by the entry for paying the said Suffolk minstrels thirteen shillings four pence on the morrow when the queen passed through cheapside to westminster there is an exquisite drawing in a contemporary manuscript illustrative of joanna's coronation which took place february twenty sixth fourteen o three not quite three weeks after her bridal she is there represented as a very majestic and graceful woman in the meridian glory of her days with a form of the most symmetrical proportions and a countenance of equal beauty her attitude is that of easy dignity. She is depicted in her coronation robes, which are of a peculiarly elegant form. Her Dalmatica differs little in fashion from that worn by our sovereign lady, Queen Victoria, at her inauguration. It partially displays her throat and bust, and is closed at the breast with a rich cordon and tassels. The mantle has apertures through which her arms are seen. They are bare and very finely molded. She is enthroned, not by the side of her royal husband, but with the same ceremonial honors that are paid to a queen regnant, in a chair of state placed singly under a rich canopy, emblazoned and elevated on a very high platform, of a hexagonal shape, approached on every side by six steps. Two archbishops have just crowned her, and are still supporting the royal diadem on her head. Her hair falls in rich curls on her bosom. In her right hand, she holds a scepter, and in her left, an orb surmounted by a cross, a very unusual attribute for a queen consort, as it is a symbol of sovereignty, and could only have been allowed to Queen Joanna, as a very especial mark of her royal bridegroom's favor. In this picture, a peeress in her coronet and robes of state, probably occupying the office of mistress of the robes, stands next the person of the queen on her right hand, and just behind her are seen a group of noble maidens wearing wreaths of roses, like the train-bearers of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Affording a curious but probably forgotten historical testimony that such was the custom prescribed anciently by the sumptuary regulations for the courtly demoiselles, who were appointed to the honor of bearing a queen of England's train at her coronation. At this ceremonial, John, Lord de Latimer, received forty marks for release of the almoner's dish placed before Queen Joanna on the day of her coronation, he having the hereditary right of almoner on such occasions. Among other courtly pageants at Queen Joanna's coronation, a tournament was held in which Beauchamp, Earl of Warwick, maintained the lists in honor of the royal bride. In the pictorial chronicles of the life and acts of this chivalric peer, who was surnamed the Courteous, it is said that he kept jousts on the queen's part against all other comers, and so notably and knightly behaved himself 
as redounded to his noble fame and perpetual worship. This quaint sentence is in explanation of another historical drawing, in which Queen Jane, as she is there styled, is represented sitting in state with the king, attended by her ladies in an open gallery, beholding with evident satisfaction the prowess of her champion. Instead of her royal robes, the queen is here represented in a gown fitting close to her shape, and has exchanged her crown for one of the lofty Syrian caps, then the prevailing headdress for ladies of rank in England, with its large, stiff, transparent veil, supported on a framework at least two feet in height. The queen's ladies-in-waiting wear hoods and veils very gracefully draped, and by no means emulating the towering headgear of their royal mistress. King Henry is by Queen Joanna's side, wearing a furred gown and velvet cap of maintenance, looped up with a fleur-de-lis. His appearance is that of a gallant gentleman in middle life. The balcony, in which the royal bride and bridegroom are seated, is not unlike the royal stand at Ascot, only more exposed to public view, and the king and queen are both accommodated with the luxury of large square cushions for their elbows, with tassels at the corners. King Henry sits quite at ease, resting his arms on his cushion, but the queen leans forward and extends her hands, with a gesture of great animation, as she looks down on the contest. Warwick has just struck his opponent. He wears the bear and ragged staff on his helmet, this historical sketch, besides its great beauty, is very valuable for its delineation of costume. Joanna of Navarre was the first widow, since the Norman conquest, who wore the crown matrimonial of England. She was, as we have seen, the mother of a large family. Her age, at the period of her second nuptials, must have been about three and thirty, and if past the morning freshness of her charms, her personal attractions were still very considerable. Her monumental effigy represents her as a model of feminine loveliness. Her exemplary conduct, as the wife of the most irascible prince in Christendom, and the excellence of her government, as regent for her eldest son, had afforded unquestionable evidence of the prudence and wisdom of this princess, and she was in possession of a very fine dower. Yet the marriage was never popular in England. It has been asserted, by many historians, that Henry the Fourth married the Duchess Dowager of Bretagne, chiefly with the view of directing the counsels of the young Duke, her son. If such were his motives, they were completely frustrated by the maternal feelings of Joanna, who, nobly consulting the welfare of her son and the wishes of his subjects, rather than the interests of her second husband, placed her children, as we have seen, under the protection of the Duke of Burgundy, previously to her departure from Bretagne, and even after her coronation as Queen of England, we find, by her letters dated Westminster, March 9, 1403, that she confirms her last act as Duchess Regent of Bretagne, by solemnly appointing her well-beloved uncle, the Duke of Burgundy, the guardian of her sons, John, Duke of Bretagne, Arthur, and Jules, and enjoins those young princes to be obedient to him, and to attend diligently to his advice. The bridal festivities of Henry the Fourth and his new queen were soon interrupted by the news of a descent of the French on the Isle of Wight, but the inhabitants compelled the invaders to retire to their ships with dishonor. Next the Breton fleet, 
being wholly under the direction of the court of France, put to sea and committed great deprivations on the coast of Cornwall and on the merchant shipping, causing much uneasiness to the king and rendering the new queen distasteful to the nation. The memorable Percy Rebellion occurred in the same year, and it has been said that this was fomented by the Earl of Worcester, in consequence of a disagreement between him and Queen Joanna during her voyage from Bretagne. This might possibly have originated in some dispute with Joanna's natural brother, Charles of Navarre, who accompanied her to England in the capacity of Chamberlain to herself. Be this as it may, it is almost certain that the Battle of Shrewsbury might have been prevented if Worcester, who was employed by the insurgent lords to negotiate a pacification with Henry, had fairly and honestly stated the concessions the king was willing to make. But he did not, and his own ruin, with that of his whole house, was the result. Part of the confiscated property of the Percys, especially the Earl of Northumberland's mansion at Aldgate, was granted to Queen Joanna by the king. In the year 1404, Henry IV granted to Queen Joanna the new tower, at the entrance of the great portals of his large hall, against the palace of Westminster, adjacent to the king's treasury, for her to hold her councils, and for the negotiation of her affairs. Also for her to hold her audiences, for charters and writings therein. The queen to hold the same, for the term of her natural life, having free ingress and egress for herself and officers to the said tower. In the month of February 1404, Joanna enjoyed the happiness of welcoming her second son, Arthur of Bretagne, to England, King Henry having been prevailed upon by her solicitations to bestow upon him the earldom of Richmond. This was the appanage of his elder brother, but as the performance of personal homage to the King of England, was an indispensable condition to the investiture of a duke of Bretagne with this earldom, and Joanna's eldest son was entirely under the tutelage of the king of France, Henry's mortal foe. It would have been fruitless to demand liegeman's service of him. Therefore the summons was, at Joanna's request, addressed to her second son, Count Arthur. Joanna's happiness in this reunion was interrupted by the arrival of an envoy from her eldest son, the reigning duke, to demand the princesses Blanche and Marguerite, who resided with her in England. No offspring from her second marriage having been born, to divide with those beloved little ones the powerful affection, with which the heart of the royal mother clung to her little ones, she could not for a time be prevailed upon to resign them, even when reminded that they were the property of Bretagne. Her son, the Duke of Bretagne, was so completely under the control of the father of his duchess, Charles the Sixth that he was compelled to espouse his quarrel against King Henry, and the French party in his dominions would have confiscated Joanna's rich dower, had she not vested the payment of it in the hands of several powerful nobles, her fast friends, and she had her own officers, through whom she received her revenues. That she was satisfied with the conduct of her eldest son may be gathered from the fact that she presented him, on the 18th of November, 1404, with the sum of 70,000 livres, that were due to her from her brother, the King of Navarre, and 6,000 livres from her rents in Normandy. 
Her gifts must have been very acceptable to the young duke, for though residing in the ducal palace, and nominally exercising the sovereign authority, his finances were so closely controlled by the court of France, that he had not the power of giving away more than one hundred souls, without the approbation of his chancellor, and other officers appointed by the Duke of Burgundy. At the commencement of the year 1405, King Henry, as he expressly states, at the mediation and earnest solicitation of his beloved consort, Queen Joanna, forgave and liberated, without ransom, all the prisoners taken in arms against him at Dartmouth by John Cornwall. This natural exercise of conjugal influence in behalf of her former subjects, the piratical Bretons, increased the unpopularity in which the queen had involved both herself and her royal husband, by filling their palaces with a household made up of foreigners. A more fatal error can scarcely be committed by female royalty in a country so constitutionally jealous and full of national pride as England. The parliamentary records of the same year testify that great discontents were engendered in the minds of all classes of men, on account of the influx of foreigners, which the king's late marriage had introduced into the realm, the disorderly state of the royal household, and the evil influence exercised over public affairs by certain individuals supposed to be about the persons of the king and queen. These grievances, as they were considered, attracting the attention of Parliament, the Commons, with the consent of the Lords, proceeded to reform the royal household, and, as a preliminary step to their regulations, they required that four persons should be removed out of the king's house, namely, the king's confessor, the abbot of Dore, with Durham and Crosby, gentlemen of his chamber. Henry, remembering full well that his title to the crown was derived from the voice of the people, far from testifying resentment at the interference of that hitherto disregarded branch of the legislature of England, the Commons, summoned the inimical members of his household to attend him in Parliament, February ninth, 1404, which they did, with the exception of the abbot of Dore. The king then, in his speech from the throne, said, that he neither knew nor could imagine any particular cause or reason, why the accused ought to be removed out of his household. Nevertheless, as the lords and commons thought proper to have it so, considering it to be for the good of the realm, and most profitable to himself, to conform himself to their wishes, he would discharge them from his household forthwith. Our sovereign lord, continues the record, said further, that he would do as much by any who were about his royal person, if they should incur the hatred and indignation of his people. The commons next appointed a committee of lords, February 22nd, to make further regulations and alterations in the appointments of the royal household, especially in those connected with the queen, when it was resolved that all French persons, Bretons, Lombards, Italians, and Navarrese, whatsoever, be removed out of the palace from the king and queen, except the queen's two daughters, Maria St. Parensi, Nicholas Alderwyke, and John Purian, and their wives. This was complied with by Henry, and put into execution that very day, and we do not find that the queen Joanna offered any resistance to the wishes of the subjects and counselors of her royal husband, but the lords agreed to indulge her with a Breton cook, two knights, a damsel, 
two chambermaids, one mistress, two esquires, one nurse, and one chambermaid for the queen's daughters, and a messenger to wait on them at certain times. In addition to these persons, Joanna retained eleven Breton lavenderers, or washerwomen, and a varlet lavenderer, or washerwoman's assistant. Much wiser would it have been of Joanna if she had taken example by the politic condescension of the king to the wishes of their subjects, and yielded an unconditional assent to the dismission of her foreign attendants, since the retention of her Breton cook, chambermaids, washerwoman, etc., offered a pretense for a second interference from Parliament. In this year, the Commons presented a petition to the king, praying, among other things, that the queen would be pleased to pay for her journeys to the king's houses, as Queen Philippa had been used to do. Joanna had no settled revenue as Queen of England at the time, when this implied remonstrance was made by the Commons to King Henry, who was himself in the most urgent want of money, harassed by perpetual rebellions, especially in Wales, and without means to pay his mutinous and discontented troops their wages. Every source of revenue, says Sir Harris Nicholas, in his luminous preface to the Acts of the Privy Council, had been anticipated, and it is scarcely possible to imagine, a government in greater distress for money than that of Henry the Fourth at that moment. If Joanna had not been in receipt of a splendid dower as Duchess Dowager of Bretagne, she would have found herself involved in the most embarrassing straits as the consort of so impoverished a king as Henry. But pecuniary cares and popular discontents were not the only troubles that disturbed the wedded life of Joanna of Navarre, who, though no longer young, was still sufficiently charming to become the theme of the following amatory stanzas from no meaner pen than that of the royal Plantagenet poet, Edward, Duke of York, cousin German to King Henry. Excellent sovereign, seeming to see, proved prudence, peerless of price, brightly blossom of benignity, of figure fairest, and freshest of days. I recommend me to your royalness, as lowly as I can or may, beseeching inwardly your gentleness, let never faint heart love betray. Your womanly beauty delicious, hath me all bent unto its chain, but grant to me your love gracious, my heart will melt as snow in rain. If ye but wist my life, and knew of all the pains that I e feel, I wis ye would upon me rue, although my heart were made of steel. And though ye be of high renown, let mercy rule your heart so free, from you, lady, this is my boon, to grant me grace in some degree. To mercy, if ye will take me, if such your will be for to do, then I would truly for my sake change my cheer and slake my woe. The arrest of the Duke of York, who, after a series of loyal and valiant services to King Henry, was, on a very frivolous pretense, committed to a rigorous imprisonment at Pevensey Castle, is possibly no less attributable to the personal jealousy of the king than the outrageous conduct of Joanna's first husband, the Duke of Bretagne, towards his old friend Clisson, was to the same baleful passion. The virtuous and matronly deportment of Joanna, however, both as Duchess of Bretagne and Queen of England, were such as to prevent the slightest shade of suspicion from resting on her conduct. Whatever might have been the offense of the Duke of York, Henry's displeasure was but temporary, 
for, in the course of three months, he was released and restored to his old employments. The year 1406 commenced with fresh remonstrances from Parliament on the subject of Joanna's foreign attendance. The Commons having now assumed a decided voice in the legislation of England, John Tiptoff, the Speaker, in his celebrated address for liberty of speaking, took occasion to comment on the disorderly state of the royal household, remarking at the same time that the order of that house for removing aliens from the Queen's court had been very ill observed. It was on this, resolved by unanimous consent, that certain strangers there enumerated, who did seem to be officers about the Queen, should by a certain day depart the realm. Whereupon a writ to proclaim the same was directed to the sheriffs of London, the aliens being charged with all, to bring in all patents of land and annuities granted them by the king or queen. The Parliament also took the liberty of recommending the sovereign to observe the strictest economy in his household. Henry received this advice very graciously, and promised to retrench all superfluous expenses, and restricted the expenditure of his establishment to ten thousand pounds a year. He likewise declared his wish for the reformation of all abuses, and requested the Parliament to take order for the payment of the debts of his household, and to grant a suitable income to his queen, for the maintenance of her state. The request for the dower of Queen Joanna was presented by John Tiptoff, the Speaker, and others of the Commons, and by vote of this Parliament, she was endowed with all the revenues enjoyed by Anne of Bohemia, the first Queen of Richard II, to the value of 10,000 marks per annum, so that with wards, marriages, and other contingencies, her income was equal to that of any previous queen of England. King Henry granted a safe conduct, January 4th, 1406, to John de Boyas, the secretary of his dear and royal consort, Joanne, to enable her to negotiate certain matters in Bretagne with regard to her dower there, also for him to bring horses and other things for her use, provided nothing be attempted to the prejudice of the people and crown of England. Henry, at the same time, granted letters of protection to the masters of the two ships from Bretagne, bringing lamps and other articles for the use of the queen. This year, Henry's youngest daughter, the Princess Philippa, was married to Eric, King of Sweden and Denmark. About the same period, Joanna was compelled to resign her two youngest daughters, Blanche and Marguerite of Bretagne, to the repeated importunities of the Duke, their eldest brother, that prince having concluded marriages for both, which he considered would greatly strengthen his interests. After the departure of her daughters, Queen Joanna retired with the king to her jointure palace, Leeds Castle in Kent, to avoid the infection of the plague, which raged so dreadfully in London that 30,000 people fell victims to its fury. After spending the greater part of the summer at Leeds, the king and queen, designing to visit Norfolk, or, as some say, Pleshy in Essex, embarked at Queensborough in the island of Sheppey, with the intention of going by sea. The royal vessel was followed by four others, with the attendants and baggage, when they were suddenly attacked by pirates, lying in wait for them at the Nor. They took four of the king's ships, and carried away Sir Thomas Rampstone, the vice-chamberlain, with all the king's furniture, plate, and wearing apparel. The king himself had a very narrow escape of falling into the hands of these bold adventurers. Notwithstanding her unpopularity with the English, 
Joanna took infinite pains to promote a good understanding between her husband and the duke, her son. Henry, in his letters to the Duke of Bretagne, May 1407, addresses him as his dearest son, and expresses his earnest wish, on account of the close tie existing between them through his dearest consort, that peace and amity may be established to prevent the effusion of Christian blood. The Duke in reply says, as our dearest mother, the Queen of England, has several times signified her wish that all good friendship should subsist between our very redoubted lord and father, Henry, King of England, and Lord of Ireland. Her lord and spouse, on one part, and ourselves on the other, we desire to enter into an amicable treaty. Accordingly, a truce between England and Bretagne was, through the mediation of Joanna, proclaimed on the 13th of September, 1407. The town of Hereford was added to the Queen's dower by King Henry the same year, she was, with his sons, the Prince of Wales, Thomas, John, and Humphrey, recommended by him to the Parliament for further pecuniary grants. An interesting proof of Joanna's respect for the memory of her first lord, the husband of her youth, and the father of her children, is to be found in one of the royal briefs in the Federa, dated February 24, 1408, in which King Henry says, At the request of our dearest consort, an alabaster tomb has been made for the defunct Duke of Bretagne, formerly her husband, to be conveyed in the barge of St. Nicholas of Nantes to Bretagne, with three of our English lieges, the same who made the tomb, namely, Thomas Colin, Thomas Holwell, and Thomas Popham, to place the said tomb in the church of Nantes, John Guihard, the master of the said barge, and ten mariners of Bretagne, and the said barge is to be considered by the English merchants under our especial protection. There is a fine engraving of this early specimen of English sculpture in the second volume of Dom Maurice's Chronicles of Bretagne. It bears the recumbent figure of the warlike John de Montfort, Duke of Bretagne, armed cap a pay, according to the fashion of the times. Henry the Fourth granted to Joanna six lead mines in England, with workmen and deputies to load her ship, and this he notified to her son, the Duke of Bretagne, in 1409, as these mines had been accustomed to export ore to Bretagne, and he wished the Duke to remit the impost for the time to come. The king and queen kept their Christmas court this year at Eltham, which seems to have been a favorite abode with the royal pair. In the summer of 1412, Joanna received a visit from her third son, Count Jules of Bretagne. Henry granted a safe conduct for him and his retinue, consisting of twenty persons, with horses and arms. But there was a provision, that no banished person be brought into England, in the prince's train, to the injury and peril of the realm. The young prince only came to England to die. He was the lord of Chantos. At the close of the Parliament of the same year, the Speaker of the Commons once more recommended to the King, the persons of the Queen and the Princes his sons, praying the advancement of their estates. The petition was quite unreasonable, as regarded Queen Joanna, who enjoyed so large an income as Queen of England, besides her rich dower from the States of Bretagne, but she never omitted any opportunity of adding to her wealth, which must have been very considerable. 
avarice was certainly the besetting sin of Joanna of Navarre, and this sordid propensity probably originated from the pressure of pecuniary cares, with which she had had to contend as Princess of Navarre, as Duchess of Bretagne, and during the first years of her marriage with King Henry. Her conduct as a stepmother appears to have been conciliating. Even when the wild and profligate conduct of the heir of England had estranged him from his father's counsels and affections, such confidential feelings subsisted between young Henry and Joanna, that he employed her influence for the purpose of obtaining the king's consent to the marriage of the young Earl of March, at that time ward to the prince. To the disgrace of the queen, however, it is recorded by the indubitable evidence of the issue rolls, that she received, as the price of her good offices on this occasion, a promissory bribe from the prince, as the following entries testify. To Joanna, Queen of England, in money paid to her by the hands of Parnell Brockett and Nicholas Alderwick, in part payment of a greater sum due to the said queen, upon a private agreement between the said queen and her present lord the king, especially concerning the marriage of the Earl of March, purchased and obtained of the said lady, the queen, by our said now lord the king, whilst he was prince of Wales, by writ privy seal, one hundred pounds. To Joan, queen of England, in money paid to the said queen, by the hands of Robert Oakburn, in part payment of a certain greater sum, agreed upon between our said lord the king, whilst he was prince, and the said queen, for the marriage of the Earl of March by writ one hundred pounds. When we consider that in point of legitimate descent, the Earl of March was the rightful sovereign of England, it is surprising how such a measure was ever advocated by the Lancastrian Prince of Wales, or permitted by so profound a politician as his father, who must have been aware of the perilous consequences to his descendants, and it is a proof that the Queen must have possessed an unbounded ascendancy over the mind of Henry the Fourth to be able to carry that point. Henry the Fourth at that time, sinking under a complication of infirmities, was probably indebted to the cherishing care of his consort, for all the comfort he was capable of enjoying in life. And Joanna, who had learned so well how to adapt herself, while in early youth, to the wayward humors of her first husband, the most quarrelsome prince in Europe, was doubtless an adept in the art of pleasing, and of governing, without appearing to do so. Henry, though only in his forty-seventh year, was worn out with bodily and mental sufferings. His features, once so regularly beautiful, and of which he, in some of his penitentiary observations, acknowledges himself to have been so proud, become, in the autumn of this year, so marred and disfigured by that loathsome disease, the leprosy, to prevent him from appearing in public. On account of this mortal sickness, he kept his last Christmas at Eltham with his queen, in great seclusion. His complaint was accompanied by epileptic fits, or death-like trances, in which he sometimes lay for hours, without testifying any signs of life. He, however, rallied a little towards the close of the holy days, and was enabled after Candlemas to keep his birthday, and to return to his palace at Westminster. He was at his devotions before the shrine of St. Edward in the abbey, when his last fatal stroke of apoplexy seized him, and it was supposed by every one that he was dead. But being removed to the abbot's state apartments in the abbey, which were nearer than his own, and laid on a pallet before the fire, he revived and asked, 
where he was. He was told, in the Jerusalem chamber. Henry received this answer as his knell, for it had been predicted of him that he should die in Jerusalem, which he supposed to be the holy city, and had solemnly received the cross, in token that it was his intention to undertake a crusade for the expiation of his sins. The blood he had shed in supporting his title to the throne pressed very heavily on his conscience during the latter years of his reign, and in the hour of his departure, he particularly requested that the Miserere should be read to him, which contained a penitential acknowledgment of sin, and a supplication to be delivered from blood guiltiness. He then called for his eldest son, Henry, Prince of Wales, to whom he addressed some admirable exhortations as to his future life and government. Shakespeare has repeated almost verbatim the deathbed eloquence of the expiring king, in that touching speech, commencing, Come hither, Henry, sit thou on my bed, etc. King Henry was, doubtless, arrayed in his regal robes and diadem, while publicly performing his devotions at the shrine of the royal saint, his popular predecessor, which accounts for the crown having been placed on his pillow, whence it was removed by his son Henry, Prince of Wales, during the long death-like swoon, which deceived all present into the belief that the vital spark was extinct. Of the many historians who have recorded the interesting death scene of Henry the Fourth, not one has mentioned his consort, Queen Joanna, as being present on that occasion. King Henry's will, which was made three years before his death, bears testimony to the deep remorse and self-condemnation which accompanied him to the grave. This curious document, a copy of which was discovered by Sir Simon Dews, after diligent search, is as follows. I, Henry, sinful wretch, by the grace of God, King of England and of France, and Lord of Ireland, being in mine whole mind, make my testament in manner and form that ensueth. First, I bequeath to Almighty God my sinful soul, that which had never been worthy to be made man, but through his mercy and his grace, which life I have mispended, whereof I put me wholly at his grace and mercy with all mine heart. At that time it liketh him of his mercy to take me, my body to be buried in the church of Canterbury, after the discretion of my cousin the archbishop. And I also thank my lords and true people for the true service they have done to me, and I ask their forgiveness if I have mistreated them in any wise. And as far as they have offended me in any wise, I pray God to forgive them it, and I do. And I will that my queen be endowed of the Duchy of Lancaster. He leaves Henry V his sole executor. The words, says Harding, which the king said at his death were of high complaint, but not of repentance or restoration of the right heirs of the crown. Henry expired on St. Cuthbert's Day, March 19, 1413. He was buried by the side of Edward the Black Prince, with great pomp and state, Henry V and all his nobility being present, upon Trinity Sunday next, following the day of his death. End of section 5。Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you, 
for listening and have a great day.